Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. My name's Jamin Bull. Today's record date is Tuesday, the 16th of April, 2019. Today I'm flying solo. Q and Elise unfortunately couldn't make it, but I am joined by two incredible journalists, Charles Thompson and Mike Smallcomb, who will be answering some of our audience submitted questions around the Dan Reed documentary Leaving Neverland and all of the child abuse allegations leveled against Michael Jackson. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast. The internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hi everyone, Jamin here. Very excited for this episode. As mentioned, I am here with two special guests to the show. Our returning legal correspondent, Mr. Charlie Thompson, journalist for the Yellow Advertiser. Just outside of London, very excited to have Charlie here. And we're also here with Mike Smallcomb today from Cornwall, Devon and Plymouth Live. Mike is also the author of the phenomenal Michael Jackson biography, Making Michael, which puts a real focus on the creative life of Michael Jackson and his wonderful art. Very excited. Both great journalists, both doing great work around the latest developments in Leaving Neverland and the allegations against Michael Jackson. So, fellas, welcome to the show. Good evening, how are you doing? Really good, Mike. Thanks for joining us. And Charlie, how are you? Yeah, I'm alright. You alright? I'm good, I'm good. It's a little bit earlier for you guys to record today than usual. Thank you for for Skyping in. Normally we're <laughs> talking at around midnight, but I know it's a weeknight for you guys, so... <laughs> what time is yeah. it for you? I think you're the one working on sociable hours today, aren't you? Yeah. I am, I am. It's 5.40am in the morning. But uh, the theory is that my wife and daughter are asleep right now. So if we can knock this episode out, I can go back to bed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how we go with that. You're not too grouchy then, Jamin. <laughs> no, not at all. I actually like early mornings. I get up most days at this time for work. So <laughs> no, it's, it's fine for me. So as mentioned, this is a Q&A episode. We don't do them all the time, but when we do Q&A episodes, we tend to get quite a few submissions. And in this instance, we certainly have broken our previous record and gotten over 200 uh, different questions, which is phenomenal. And these are from all over the place on social media, from Facebook, from Instagram, from Twitter. We've had people email us. We've whittled these questions down to 30 key ones that we're really excited to ask. And and I've got to say before we move on, thank you so much to our listeners who've shown so much passion in submitting questions for this episode. As you know, we have a few different types of formats of the MJ cast. We have regular episodes, which are news and discussion on Michael Jackson. We have special episodes, which are interviews with people that knew and worked with Michael Jackson. We have roundtables, which is where we assemble a panel of people to discuss a single topic. And then we have these episodes, which are Q&A episodes, which is where you guys take control and you submit the questions. We're so excited to put these to Mike and Charlie. Fellas, you guys are going to respond to these the best you can. Some questions one of you will respond to, potentially, and some of them both of you will respond to. We'll see how we go. 
And the theory is that we wanted to group these questions and sequence them to sort of cover 93 allegations, moving on to the 2005 allegations, and then rounding things up with the latest allegations in Robson and Save Chuck and, and Leaving Neverland, which is where we've got most of our questions. But we might get started and get into it. Let's kick things off. So beginning with the 93 allegations, we've got a question here from Mercedes Donis. It came through an email. It's a general Michael Jackson related question around negating the predator profile, as she puts it. And she asks, can you briefly outline all of the differences between each accuser and how they show difference in modus operandi? If you take each case in turn, so you start with Geordie Chandler in the Geordie Chandler case, there is never any suggestion, for example, of alcohol being used, that sort of thing. Whereas when you come to the later allegations, like the Gavin Arviso allegations, there is, uh, you know, it's alleged that Michael is um, making him compliant by feeding him alcohol. And then you have the the different time frames. So, for example... Michael knows Gavin Arviso allegedly for like four years before he ever does anything to him, whereas Wade Robson now claims that it was the first night that uh, he preyed on him. So the stories are not really tallying up just on the basics there. I mean, you could get right down into the, the real like nitty gritty detail, but even on the big themes, the grooming and, and uh, the grooming process and how long it took and all that sort of stuff, they don't really match up at all. I don't know if Mike can think of any other specifics. I think with Arvizo, I think another one is the fact that um, I don't believe that he was sort of whisked away anywhere. Am I right, Charles? You know, like to Las Vegas or no? Or yeah, like, you're, like, you're right. The 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 only time that happened is post Martin Bashir, where they're flown to Miami to um to get them away from the press. But other than that, you're right. Yeah. So <clears throat> the the kind of the lavishing of of gifts and stuff was not really the same as as was alleged in the other cases. But I mean, the, the general story is the same, which is Michael befriends family and then invites them to Neverland and then starts hanging out with them and then supposedly starts abusing the kids. But it's just the, the you know, most paedophiles will have a very rehearsed and dependable grooming process because they practice that process over and over and over again and they become quite expert at it. But when you look at the, the allegations against Michael Jackson, there is not a consistent process. As I say, you've got one guy saying, literally the first time I went to his house, he he did something to me. And then the other guy saying, he waited four years, groomed me for four years. So that doesn't really match up. And then the actual grooming process in terms of, you know, some of them are saying I had to be uh, made compliant with drugs or alcohol. And the others are not saying that. So that there is not really a consistent pattern there, as you would expect to find in a typical case. And then, obviously, Arvizo is only really the only one post Chandler, and Arvizo is the only one sort of related to um, going to Neverland to help him with his illness as well. Yeah. The one thing that was interesting about leaving Neverland, actually, was that if you look at the Geordie Chandler case, it's all very kind of chaste, and um, the story as told by by the Chandler family is that Michael kind of seduces Geordie and they fall in love with each other, whereas the Gavin story 
was obviously like a decade later. And the story there was that Michael was in an extremely predatory way, was kind of luring the kids to his ranch, was uh, sending them wild by feeding them alcohol, and then was using their intoxication as a way of, of making them compliant so he could abuse them. So there's a very stark difference between the 93 allegations and the 2003 allegations. Now, what's interesting about Save Chuck and Robson is that they predate, according to their story, they predate uh, Geordie Chandler, and yet their allegations resemble the Arviso claims rather than the Geordie Chandler claims. So again, there's a, a kind of a fissure there in the timeline where you've got him moving from one MO to a different MO and then back to another MO. So that doesn't really add up. Great. Our next question is from Elsa Anderson. This one's an email. And it says, the 93 case settlement has two sorts of explanations. Could you shed some light on how they fit together or what is the truth? Explanation A, the insurance company paid against Michael Jackson's will, which is supported by Mesero and Scott Ross and was brought into the 2005 trial as some kind of legal document. It's said to be possible to go against the client's will when it's litigation, and the settlement, of course, was on the litigation charge. Explanation B, it was Michael's legal team that, after not being able to postpone the civil trial until after the eventual criminal trial, and especially after Mr. Cochran joined the team, talked Michael Jackson into settling and that Cochran made sure the insurance company would pay before settling. This is supported by Geraldine Hughes, the legal secretary of Barry Rothman and writer of the book Redemption, who also claims an insurance company can't do anything against their client's will. Only thing clear is that Michael, Cochran and Weitzman's signatures are all on the settlement, and that was leaked to the press early on in the Arviso case. So what explanation is the truth? Um, yeah, it's my understanding that it's explanation B, the insurance company didn't step in, you know, out of his own free will. It had to be, it had to come from Michael Jackson's uh, legal team. Is that right, Charles? Yeah, so the story about the insurance company comes from a document which was filed in the 2005 trial or in the, in the preamble to the 2005 trial, whereby the prosecution was trying to introduce evidence of that settlement as um, evidence of Michael's guilt. And the defense was arguing that that shouldn't be allowed to happen because it was massively prejudicial. And they submitted what's called a motion in limine, which is uh, an argument on paper, which goes before the judge. And then the judge makes the decision based on both of the uh, opposing sides' motions. And one of the arguments, it was one of about six or seven arguments that was made in that document, was that the settlement was paid over the protests of Mr. Jackson and his personal legal counsel by an insurance company. Now, that motion was written by Brian Oxman. And if you look at the bottom of the document, it has Brian Oxman's signature on it. And that is because there was a huge amount of work to do on the case. And so Mesereau and um, Susan Yu were delegating different parts of the case to different people. They had Robert Sanger doing some pieces. They had Susan Yu doing some. Tom Mesereau was doing some. Oxman was doing some. So they, they were just giving different bits of the job to different people. So Oxman writes that motion about settlement. And one of the arguments he makes is that the settlement was paid by the insurance company over Mr. Jackson's protest and without his permission. Now, Tom Mesereau has since gone public and said 
that it is now his understanding that Oxman got that wrong. In fact, if you read Johnny Cochran's book, Johnny Cochran takes credit himself in his memoir for negotiating the settlement. So whether an insurance company paid the settlement, whether Michael had some kind of insurance taken out so that he was protected against uh, legal costs and things, maybe, maybe an insurance company did pay. I'm not clear on that. But in terms of specifically about whether the insurance company negotiated and entered into the settlement, that's not correct. According to Mr. Mesereau, that was an error by Brian Oxman. And in fact, the settlement was negotiated and agreed by Michael's legal team. I understand that. I think the insurance company did make the payment. I think it was Lloyd's of London. Charles, have you heard something about that? Yeah, I'm not 100%, but there is something in the back of my mind that's, that says that the insurance company paid it. And not only that they paid it, but they um, it was done in installments. And I think those installments were paid all the way up until about the year 2000 or 2001. They didn't get a massive lump sum. Thanks, guys. Next question is from at Taffet's Barn on Twitter. Can Thompson explain the alleged match of Jordan's description of Jackson's genitalia in 93? People who believe that Michael is guilty are now completely convinced the photos matched, even though I know that the narrative before was that it didn't match. They often reference Dr. Richard Strick and Gary Spiegel as people that confirmed it matched. Moreover, if it did match, then why did the prosecution try to enter it into evidence so late in 2005 only for it to be declined? Wouldn't it have been incriminating, and so they should have entered it earlier? Well, I mean, there is no easy answer to this question because we don't have access to the only real evidence, which is the photographs. So what we have to go on is various bits and pieces of legal paper and press reporting. It was reported by some sections of the media at the time that there was a match. It was reported by other sections that there was not a match. One thing that I think is very important to note is that they did this uh, photo shoot and then Michael Jackson is not arrested and is not charged. So you would think that if they had this smoking gun, which was the matching description, then that would have been more than probable cause for an arrest and a charge. Moreover, the case goes to a grand jury, and you would think that if the evidence that compelling was presented to a grand jury, then you would be handed down an indictment, whereas uh, not one but two grand juries both refused to hand down an indictment, which would suggest that there was no smoking gun and there was no compelling description. Moreover, we know that Catherine Jackson was called as a witness to that grand jury and was asked questions about whether Michael may have done something to alter the appearance of his genitals. So if there was a match between the photographs and Geordie Chandler's description, why would they be trying to give an explanation for there not being a match? Uh, we also know <laughs> that uh, Geordie Chandler's legal team were planning to try to get those photographs suppressed and were pushing for a second photo shoot, which again would indicate that the description was not in line with the actual reality. It was widely reported at the time uh, that Geordie Chandler had described Michael Jackson as being circumcised, which we know from Michael's autopsy report that he was not. Tom Snedden 
argued in a legal document, another motion in limine, in the preamble to the, the trial in 2005, that in his opinion, there was a match and he wanted to enter those photographs as evidence, but the judge ruled those photographs out. Basically, is there a definitive answer either way? No, but the evidence does tend to suggest that there was not a strong match between the photographs and the description. The next question comes from at Devon underscore Da Vinci on Twitter. And he says, I know I may be in the very small minority, but I feel kind of bad for Jordan Chandler. I know, hear me out. From all of the sources I've studied, which is a lot, Jordan was dragged into the accusations by his parents and was influenced to stick to it. And even when he went with his dad's team to meet with Michael and his team, Jordan was described running up to and hugging Michael as if nothing ever happened. After the case was settled, he quickly cut contact with his family, and I've heard that the main reason was because of what they did to his friendship with Michael. And Jordan has gone out of his way, even leaving the country, to not testify against Michael in court. I know he was barred from talking to the media, so that's why he has never made a book or a documentary. He was assaulted by his father around the same time he was being asked to go and testify in the 2005 trial. I heard a rumour that the two incidents may have been related. I know this is speculation, but what if Jordan is just an MJ fan that got the chance of a lifetime to meet his idol and play and hang out with him, but due to corrupt parents was dragged into a situation that found him now against his idol and hated by the community he still wants to be a part of? Before you ask, no, I'm not Jordan Chandler. Yeah, I do agree with that um, to some extent. I mean, he was 13 years old. And as we know, Evan Chandler was um, very money hungry and trying to extort, you know, millions of dollars from Michael Jackson. Well, to add to that, the sodium amatel um, situation, Charles, t- tell us a little bit about, about that. I think you know quite a bit about the, the truth serum that um, Evan Chandler tried to administer or did administer to Jordan Chandler. Well, it, it was, uh, as you say, sodium amatol, which was a drug that was at one time quite commonly used as a sedative or an anesthetic for surgical procedures, but was out of fashion by the early 90s. And Evan Chandler used his position as a dentist to obtain that drug and administer it to his son and question him under the influence of that drug about whether Michael had ever molested him. He'd always insisted up to that point that Michael had never touched him, but once under the influence of that drug, he changed his story. At the time, it was considered wrongly to be used as a, a truth serum, but in fact, uh, subsequent studies linked it to false memory syndrome, and it was actually linked to huge numbers of uh, bogus repressed memory cases of people being abducted by UFOs and probed by aliens and satanic ritual abuse and all sorts of stuff so uh, the change of story under the influence of sodium amatol is um, highly suspect and and does not go in favor of the allegations because we now know that the drug is is known to produce false memories and the sodium amatol story itself does sound insane it sounds like something out of a conspiracy movie but it was uh, confirmed by Somebody that was present in the GQ piece was Michael Jackson, framed by Mary Fisher. I believe Evan Chandler uh, admitted it himself in a televised interview. Yeah, so you've got, obviously, Evan wanting money before Jordan had even made any sort of accusation. And then that accusation only came under the influence of that drug, um, I think, which tells you a lot. 
added to that that Jordan refused to testify um, in front of the uh, grand juries, and then also again in 2005, which would indicate that you know Jordan maybe still has you know feelings for Jackson as, as a friend, and um, that he doesn't want him to to face you know any sort of criminal action. What do you think, Charles, on Jordan Chandler? Can we give him a bit of uh, sympathy for being a child at the time? Well, just to add, the defence in 2005 had witnesses who were lined up ready to testify if they were needed, that Jordan had told them subsequently as an adult that, in fact, Michael never touched him and he hated his parents for making him lie. And uh, it turned out that he had gained legal emancipation from his parents as quickly as he possibly could after that settlement was reached. His mother testified in the um, 2005 trial that she hadn't heard from him for 11 years. So, you know, the, there clearly was a, a problem there in the family, and and he clearly was extremely upset with his parents. Can you give him a pass? I, I, I think so. I mean, you know, a lot of people get a bit worked up about the fact that he's never come forward. I mean, assuming that he wants to change his story, or if he came forward, he would change his story. You just have to imagine what he would be opening himself up to if he um, if he chose to to do that to go public. He he would be it'd be like that scene from Notting Hill where they open the front door and there's like a thousand photographers outside. It just would be hell for him. He would be harassed endlessly. But not only by the press, but by Michael Jackson fans, uh, also by Michael Jackson haters who would accuse him of trying to cover up for a paedophile. I mean, he would just never hear the end of it for the rest of his life. He's done a very good job of disappearing. And why on earth would he want to undo that and um, effectively open himself up to a lifetime of pain? So I don't blame him for not coming forward at all. The settlement actually gags him from speaking about Michael Jackson in any capacity whatsoever, doesn't it? I, I, I presume that doesn't I have, change with the death. I've heard of that Michael that was a 25-year gagging order, but I don't know if that's correct. But somebody mentioned that to me a while ago. So if he did want to, I think he could now. In fact, this would be the year that it would change because the settlement was reached ninety-four. So 2019 would be the end, if that is correct. But I'm, I'm not certain that that is right. Great. And our next question, we actually have two questions. Question five and six both come from at Zeroster's Child on Twitter. And the first question is, on Evan Chandler's suicide, Geraldine Hughes has said in the Nicole's View interview on YouTube that she believes he was murdered. Any thoughts on that? I have no reason at all to believe that he was murdered i can think of no motive and as far as i'm aware there's no evidence he was terminally ill anyway i don't i've never even heard that so i i don't subscribe to that whatsoever okay and uh question six at zorosta's child again um from twitter asks why isn't geraldine hughes invited onto mainstream media platforms to speak about the 93 case I think I think the answer to that is fairly simple. Um, nobody who is pro Michael Jackson in any way has been invited to um, speak on any sort of media platform whatsoever. So it doesn't surprise me that someone like Geraldine Hughes would be invited when nobody has, um, and especially not regarding the 93 case, um, when we're talking about other allegations. 
I think the bottom line is the media isn't interested in speaking to anybody who is pro-Michael Jackson in any way, shape or form. The only reason I was invited onto a couple of TV programs was because of Robson and Safechuck related stuff. But yeah, I think the answer is simple there. It's just they're just not interested in interviewing anybody that has a different view to what Dan Reed's documentary is portraying. I certainly think that's true. I think Geraldine has a credibility issue also. She's quite religious. She tends to go off on sort of religious rants about how her employer was the devil, uh, who was Barry Rothman, um, Geordie Chandler's lawyer. She has, uh, she was <laughs> during a, I'm trying to remember if it was the AG trial or the Conrad Murray trial, but during one of those trials, she got banned from the courtroom because she kept yelling out. And then she was captured by a news camera in the background while somebody was giving an interview uh, howling like a wolf at the sky. So she does have some uh, credibility issues also. All right. Well, that concludes the first section of our Q&A. That covers the 93 allegations. So moving on to the mid-2000s allegations. Domna Stavridou in Greece has sent us an email. Hello, Mike and Charles. Thank you so much for doing this. You are such great people. I'm still stuck in something which I still quite can't understand. Can you please explain once again after the Martin Bashir documentary, why did Gavin Arvizo and his mother turn their backs on Michael? I still don't get it. Did his mother force him into it like Evan Chandler did? Or did they both develop hate? Did they want to destroy Michael just because they felt abandoned and wanted money? What was the reason again? Thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Many regards from Greece. Domna Stavridou. Well, the defense position was that effectively Michael Jackson cut this family out of his life. So after the Martin Bashir documentary, Michael sends his people to go and collect the Arvizos and hide them away from the media because they're being bombarded by journalists. They go away and stay uh, in Miami and Chris Tucker is staying with them also. And then a certain point, a couple of weeks later, Chris Tucker is growing increasingly uneasy about this family because they keep harassing him to give them his car. He had a very expensive, nice car that he was driving them around in. And they kept making comments like, Chris, you're so rich. You don't need this car. You should just give us this car. I mean, what's the problem? You're so rich. You could just buy another one. You should just give us this car. And he grew so uncomfortable with this family that... At one point, he pulls Michael aside. He testifies to this in court. Uh, he may have been the last defense witness. He was one of the last defense witnesses. He testifies that he pulled Michael aside and he said, Michael, you have to get rid of this family. There is something wrong with this family. Something is amiss. So effectively, Michael takes Chris Tucker's advice. And once all the Bashir stuff has calmed down, he just kind of quietly lets the family disappear and stops answering their phone calls and stops sending them invitations to come to Neverland. In the meantime, a car that Michael Jackson had gifted to the family, again, this is this family all over. Michael's given them a car, and now they want Chris Tucker to give them a car as well. The car that Michael gave them breaks down, and they start harassing him, calling his uh, home and calling his employees and saying, you need to come and fix our car. We've got no way of moving around. And effectively, they get blanked. Michael doesn't answer. Nobody at Michael's camp answers. And that is when 
Janet goes off and starts consulting civil lawyers and saying that she wants to sue Michael Jackson for molestation. And, of course, she goes to see Larry Feldman, who was the the lawyer in the uh, Geordie Chandler case. And then he later bumps into Larry King in a deli and tells Larry King the woman's nuts and she just wants money. So even Larry Feldman, who represented Geordie Chandler, was not buying this woman's case. So, And, of course, uh, on the stand during Gavin's own cross-examination by Mesereau, this was what Mesereau thought was like his the shining jewel of his defense case was that when Gavin was on the stand, he kept complaining about Michael Jackson cutting them out of his, uh, out of his life. And he sensed that Gavin was quite angry at Michael and he broke all the rules of traditional cross-examination for a defense lawyer, which is you never ask a why question, because if you ask a question with a why on the beginning, there is no end to the answer. So that witness could babble on for half an hour if they want to, just saying everything under the sun that's that's negative about your client. And you've sort of opened yourself up to it and there's nothing you can do about it. But he sensed that if he asked this question, he would get an answer that was damaging to the prosecution. And he said, you're very angry at Michael Jackson, aren't you? And Gavin said, yeah. And Mesero said, why are you so angry uh, Michael Jackson and Gavin said, where's the effect of because he didn't have to stop taking our phone calls or he didn't have to stop calling us, something like that. He didn't say I was molested. He didn't say because he gave me alcohol and then sexually abused me. He said because he didn't have to stop answering our phone calls. So that's where the narrative comes from, that this family effectively turned on Michael Jackson because they were phased out of his life after the Martin Bashir thing. That was the defense case. The defense case was this family was frozen out. And once they realized that Michael Jackson wasn't giving them anything anymore, they decided they were going to take it instead. Certainly some parallels there to the other cases, I would say, as well. It seems to be a pattern that whenever these people are frozen out of Michael's life, they turn on him. Yeah, I mean, safe Chuck. You can you can see that he was distraught by the fact that, you know, Michael didn't see him that much anymore. You know, I think that is genuine. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Dan Reed himself says in one of his interviews, in one of his very strange interviews where he keeps sort of talking about sexual abuse of children as though it's a normal relationship, he talks about Jimmy getting dumped. He says, um, effectively, Jimmy was distraught and he was crying for his mum because he'd just been dumped by his boyfriend, something like that. So... That's certainly that's even uh, Dan Reed's case that that Safe Chuck was cheesed off because Michael froze him out. It's the same with Robson, you know, all the anger from the mother, particularly the mother. You know, every time they weren't uh, being treated like royalty, she was just throwing a tantrum. And there have been other people that have come forward since then, people that worked at the record label on that silly, whatever that rap thing was that wade was in what was that that bullshit anyway so when he shaved his head and Quo, like a was it 10 year old <laughs> rapper or some shit and um yeah you know that like people that were working at that record label said she was a complete and utter nightmare you know if if they were going anywhere she would demand a massive chauffeur driven car or she always wanted first class this and the best of that and the biggest suite in the hotel they said she was a disaster to deal with. So there's a parallel there as well. And of course, Evan Chandler throws a tantrum and accuses Michael because Michael won't give him a script writing deal and he won't build a wing on the side of his house. So in every case, really, you can trace it to 
they don't get what they want. They feel like they're entitled to something and they don't get it. And then that's when they start making allegations. Right. Next question is also from Taffet's Barn on Twitter, who submitted a question earlier. And this one is asking about art books. Is it true that two of the legal art books that were depicting nude boys were found in a locked filing cabinet in Jackson's bedroom, as stated by the prosecution and later during Rosabelle Smith's testimony from page 10 onwards in the relevant court documents? It sounds pretty suspicious. Those books were sent to him by fans, I believe. And in one of them, I think the inscription was something like, look at the spirit of happiness and and joy in these boys' faces. And the other one, I think, was called The Boy. And that came from a fan. I can't remember her name now. It's Val or something. I think it said like to Michael from from your fan, love somebody. So both of those books. Rhonda, right. So both of those books came from fans. In terms of the filing cabinet, Charlie, any, any idea on that? Well, I went back to the documents where they were listing what they found in Michael's home. And there is an inventory of what they found, but there is nothing in that inventory which says that these books were found locked in a, a cabinet or a filing drawer or something like that. So I'm not sure whether that is true or not. I can't find it in the original paperwork that that's true. And as you say, one of those books had an inscription from a fan and the other one, you're right, it says something like, look at the the pure joy on the faces of these children. This is the true spirit of childhood and this is the life that I wish for my own children. Words to that effect. So, you know, and, and it's important to stress these are books which you can buy today on the internet. I mean, they're out of print, so you'd have a hard job going into Waterstones and uh, buying them, but they're not banned books. These are perfectly legal art books. I mean, it's a bit like saying that anybody who's got an art collection with cherubs in the paintings is a collector of child pornography. It's ludicrous. You know, he had also art books with heterosexual S&M imagery, he had art books with homoerotic imagery between adult men. He had uh, books full of nude paintings of women. I mean, he had a massive library of books to do with art. And some of those uh, paintings in those books inspired the artwork, for example, in the um, the You Are Not Alone music video. So this was not a secret. This was, He collected art from all around the world. He collected paintings. He collected books of art. And he was perfectly entitled to do that and to go through his whole house and say, well, he had these two perfectly legal art books by well-known photographers, which had like boys bums in. I mean, so what? It's just ridiculous, really. Um, you know, it, it cheeses me off really the, the emphasis that certain people put on that because it is meaningless, really. I mean, if you were to go through my attic, or something you would find from when I was a kid, you'll probably find pictures of me as a baby laying naked on a rug, you know, with my butt showing, or you would find pictures of me having my first bath, that sort of thing. And it's, it's kind of like ridiculous to get, you could go through anybody's house and find something that you could, if you wanted to present it as being evidence of a sexual interest in children. But you know, it's all about context and the context here is that these are two books that were found in a house which had like 20,000 books in it or maybe more. 
the, the house and books had that were sent by fans, it. of course, as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and a book, I mean, you know, it's pretty far-fetched to suggest that Michael Jackson was such a cunning paedophile that he used to buy child pornography, but then write inscriptions in it to make it look innocent in case he ever got raided by the police. Because, of course, these books were found not in 2003, but in 93. They were only presented in 2003 because that's when the indictment was handed down. But they were mm. found during the first raid. So this is before anybody has ever suggested that there's anything inappropriate about Michael's relationship with children. So how cunning and sly is he that he's ordering his child porn? And then when it arrives, he's thinking, right, just in case the feds burst through the door, I'll write an inscription in the front that says how much I love childhood. You know, it's just it's, it's so far fetched. It's irritating that they found those books in a way because it is like a waved around by Michael Jackson haters as some sort of smoking gun. And it is hard to argue because they they were there. The books were there, but it's all about context. And, you know, if you own a, a library with tens of thousands of books by different artists depicting different things, then, of course, in any art collector's collection, you're going to find some photography with a, a kid's butt in it or you're going to find a a painting with some naked cherubs in it or something is just not a big deal. I think the key part in one of the books as well is the inscription of this is the life I want for my children. I think that suggests an innocence there that's, you know, would he, <laughs> it'd be crazy to, to say that he would want a life of being a, a paedophile for his, for his own children. You know, that it's, it's just, yeah, nuts. Yeah. Uh, and I think it needs to also be, remembered that when you watch the raid videos from the Santa Barbara Police Department or whatever they're called um, at Neverland, you can see that Michael Jackson's pretty much like a serial hoarder. Like this guy's hallways, his rooms, like every room in the house is just chock full of stuff. Video games, like boxes of stuff. It's just his house is packed to the brim of just crap everywhere. So, I mean, I don't even know if Michael knew half of the stuff he had <laughs> all throughout the house that were sent to him. They did find when they went into his house, I believe they found several crates of books which had never even been opened where he'd mm. bought them at auction. Basically, they went into some room somewhere at Neverland and there were these huge, you know, like several meter squared crates full of books that were all wrapped up in plastic. He'd bought them and they never even read them or open them um he was a serious i mean look at the the bashir thing where he goes around that shop he just buys everything in the shop it's all disgusting stuff all hideous and um apparently it just all <laughs> went into an aircraft hangar somewhere didn't even use it just went into storage he was a hoarder and he was a compulsive spender in fact he got sued about a year before he died or maybe less because of another auction where he'd bought loads of stuff and then just never collected it <laughs> yeah yeah he just loved his stuff so much that um the whole julian's auctions thing shortly before he died he <laughs> dr tomei tomei one of his managers before shortly before he died was obviously trying to save money for michael and he tried to auction off a load of uh, michael's stuff but um yeah michael cancelled it at the last minute because he just wanted to keep everything so <laughs> yeah it just shows you what type of guy he was Next question, Martina Vanderlinden from Facebook. I'd like to know how long Michael's FBI investigation really was. There are many versions out there from 10 years to 12 years or even 17 years. 
I know Charles was one of the people who back in 2009 asked for those files to be released, so he might know more about this subject and the kind of investigations the FBI did. I think it's important to know more about what type of investigations the FBI did in order to get your argument right in case you need it. I did request Michael's FBI file under Freedom of Information very shortly after he died. And, of course, it's important to remember that only about half of his file has ever been released. I requested his file. It was something like 600 pages long. I wasn't the only one that requested it, by the way. But they they released about 300 of the 600 pages. They never explained why the rest were withheld which they're supposed to do according to the law. If they're going to withhold something, they have to tell you why they've done it, but they didn't. It is almost certainly because it includes references to other people that were still alive. Could be that, you know, for instance, he was he was involved with dodgy businessmen or with civil rights leaders or, or other people that were of interest to the authorities. So he might crop up in relation to them as opposed to in relation uh, to his own file. So some fans say that Michael was investigated by the FBI for 10 years. That is not correct. There was not a concerted Michael Jackson investigation by the FBI. In fact, I've even seen people saying that there were wiretaps and stuff like that. That's not correct. That's not true. Or certainly there is no evidence of that in the files that have been released. What the FBI did was they assisted with the local authorities' investigations in 1993-94, and then again between 2003-2005. Now, that's not to minimize the fact that the FBI investigated, because, of course, the FBI is an enormous body with massive power and massive investigative uh, resources. And if you read through the FBI files and you look at all the different departments that worked on the Michael Jackson cases, there's something like 25 different FBI departments that were involved in the investigations into Michael Jackson. So this is not, you know, it was taken to the FBI and someone had a look at it and then ticked a box. This is proper concerted FBI investigation, but it was only focused on the two original investigations, uh, the 93-94 and the 2004-2005 case. That's when the FBI was, was investigating Michael Jackson. There's no evidence that between 94 and 2003, there was any further investigation going on. They did investigate in 1992, but that actually was something to do with some nutcase that was sending Michael death threats. And um, it turned out that he was sending other people death threats as well, and he ended up in prison. In terms of criminal investigation of Michael Jackson, you're looking at 93, 94, and then 2003 to 2005. There is not a 10-year investigation. That's that's a, a misnomer. Thanks, Charlie. All right, last email on the mid-2000s trial. This is from Carolyn Lewis. Hi, MJ Cast. I would love to hear Mike and Charles' position on Jim Clement. I've heard a few podcasts where he says things like, Jordan and Gavin's experience is completely corroborated, that a computer was seized at Neverland that had the drive completely wiped, and that Jordan was ready to testify at the 2005 trial against Michael. Jim said that Jordan didn't due to a family illness and that Jordan wanted to pursue a criminal case against Michael if he was acquitted, but ultimately didn't because of the statute of limitations. Are these points credible or verifiable? Why would a former FBI agent lie? 
Also, are there no implications for him to be going on air discussing Michael molesting Gavin as if it's a fact when Michael was acquitted of these charges? Or do the same defamation laws apply? Thank you both for your hard and thorough work. Best wishes, Carolyn. Jim Clement, or whatever his name is, Clement, Clemente, Clomold, fuck knows. Anyway, he's um, an ex-FBI expert, allegedly, but he's he is not credible. Um, he he touts himself as being an expert in body language, amongst various other things. This is how big of an expert Jim is in body language. He once went on television and said that because he's such an expert in body language, he was able to tell as soon as he saw the footage of Michael Jackson and Gavin Arvizo in the Martin Bashir documentary where they were sat next to each other and holding hands and talking about Michael helping to cure Gavin's cancer. He was able to tell, because he's such an expert in body language, that Michael Jackson was sexually abusing Gavin. Now, the problem with that expert analysis from this clearly amazing expert is that Gavin Arvizo's own version of events is that Michael Jackson had never sexually abused him at the time that the Martin Bashir documentary was filmed, and in fact did not sexually abuse him for about a year after the Martin Bashir documentary was filmed. So that's how good of a body language expert Jim is. So anything Jim has to say, I tend to take with a pinch of salt. Jordan wanting to pursue a criminal case against Michael if he was acquitted, there's no evidence for that. Uh, He seems to just make things up as he goes along. Why would a former FBI agent lie? Well, because he's not an FBI agent anymore. I'm not sure if he ever was an FBI agent. He may just have been a consultant. He's a former prosecutor, which is important to remember. So he has a massive pro-prosecution bias. And now, of course, he makes his living as a media commentator. And as a media commentator, you're no good to anybody if you're boring. So it's important to him, if he wants to keep earning money, to make the most outrageous and sensational comments he possibly can to keep his name up there and to keep the bookings coming in. I don't really put any stock in anything that he has to say. He gets his facts wrong all the time. There's a great clip circulating on Twitter. Tom Mesero was asked to comment on this guy. He'd commented on something Tom Mesero had said about a different case and Tom, he said, he said this guy needs to go to a therapist because there's clearly something wrong with him. He said, it's like everything he's saying that I said, I've never said. He's just a lunatic. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what to say. I mean, he's a nutcase. I just wouldn't bother paying any attention to him if I were you, Caroline. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, we're going to move straight into the Robson and Safechuck allegations now that are put forward in the Leaving Neverland documentary by Dan Reed. First question is from at dpicker1038 on Twitter. And this person asks, can you tell us what are the inconsistencies between Wade's own court documents and his Leaving Neverland documentary? Now we know about the Grand Canyon. Is there anything else like this? Well, I can speak a little bit about Wade Robson committing perjury in court to be able to, to sue the estate for hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, he deliberately perjured himself in court, which is a serious offence, in order to get around a deadline for suing the estate. So to put it simply, uh, under US law, a person has, uh, I believe it's 60 days uh, from the date they are aware of the existence of a deceased person's estate to file a claim against it. 
And uh, Robson claimed that he realized uh, he was abused in, I think it was May 2012. Um, but he didn't file his lawsuit until about a year later. So he missed that deadline uh, by about 12 months. And in order to get around that, Robson claimed under oath in court that he wasn't even aware of the estate's existence prior to, I think it was sometime in March uh, 2013. And this turned out to be a lie. You know, Robson knowingly committed perjury just so he could sue Jackson's estate, because as it turns out, he'd in fact met with John Brankier, estate executor. You all know John Brankier. He met him in 2011 in his failed effort to get work with uh, the estate on the Cirque du Soleil show. I think it was prior to meeting with Branca that I think a talent agent from Robson said something like, you have to contact John Branca, the person in charge of Michael's estate. So he knew the estate was open for administration. And then Robson admitted that he wanted the job badly and all this nonsense. But after negotiations, ultimately the estate chose someone else for the job. I think the judge said that he found that Robson had lied in the case, um, lied about his knowledge of the estate's existence in his own sworn declaration. Yeah, so the case proceeded to what's called a summary judgment, and that was at the request of the Michael Jackson estate. Now, it's unusual for a plaintiff in a case like that to ask for a summary judgment because a summary judgment is inherently biased uh, towards the, uh, the the plaintiff rather than the defendant. So... Uh, the way summary judgment works is that you dispense with the need for a jury and you allow the judge to take the place of a jury. And then when the judge is making his decision, he must, in any point of argument where he finds that a rational juror could believe what's being said, not would, but could, a rational juror could believe what's being said by the plaintiff he must accept that what the plaintiff is saying is true and then proceed on that basis towards his verdict instead of the jury's verdict. That's inherently biased towards the plaintiff in any case rather than the defendant. But the defendants, the Michael Jackson estate in this case, said we want a summary judgment. And that's because when the judge came to this issue of Wade Robson saying uh, my claim should be allowed because, okay, it's four years after Michael died, but I didn't know until early 2013 that he had an estate that I was able to sue. Well, the, the estate brought in all this evidence that uh, Wade Robson had been negotiating with the estate for like two years by then trying to get a job from them. Uh, he'd been emailing them. He'd been meeting them. He'd been negotiating with them. He'd been communicating with them through third parties. He even, as early as 2010, was it 2009 or 2010, when This Is It came out, the movie, he went to the premiere of This Is It, which was a, a Michael Jackson estate movie premiere. So he must have known about the estate even then, but it was provable that he'd been in conversations with the estate since 2011, and yet he'd claimed under oath in his uh, case against the estate that he didn't know that it existed until 2013. So the judge was not able to find that a rational juror could believe that part of, of Robson's story. So effectively, when the judge ruled the summary judgment in favor of the defendants, the estate, he was ruling that a rational jury or a rational juror could not believe Robson's account. 
Now, the other points where Robson kind of uh, has contradicted his own version of events is that in the lawsuit, he claims that he did not realize that Michael Jackson had behaved abusively towards him until 2012, whereas he's now in Leaving Neverland, he's basically telling multiple stories which suggest that he knew that what Michael Jackson had done in, uh, was wrong as early as 2005, and he claims in the documentary that he therefore was in a quandary as to whether or not he should testify in Michael's defense. And he comes up with all these excuses about why he did that. Well, I didn't want to upset his children. I didn't want to be responsible for his children losing their father. I um, I still thought that I loved him. And then there was the, in the LA Times interview, well, I felt pressured by Michael's lawyers. So all of these excuses that he's giving effectively amount to an admission that he knew that what he was saying on the stand was not true. So he's kind of destroying his own appeal here because he's in the middle of appealing with Savechuck against their cases being thrown out of court. And here he is dismantling his own narrative, which effectively makes his case null and void because the the reason that they've been able to bring their case because it's so far out of time in terms of statute of limitations on you know on a criminal level and also the time within which you're supposed to bring a lawsuit against somebody's estate after they die is by making this argument that oh well we didn't realize it had happened we didn't realize we were abused until years later that's the loophole that they're trying to win this money through and yet here they both are in their documentary, which they've ill-advisedly participated in, both of them telling stories suggesting that they actually knew that they were abused in 2005. So that uh, is a contradiction uh, for both of them. Yeah, not, not a contradiction as such, but you've also got Robson being ordered to produce all the documents about his written communications with people um, and hiding evidence from the court as well. Um, so there's no... I mean, I've had a, another, I've looked at the documentary again a couple of times to see if there's any real inconsistencies like the Grand Canyon one. None stand out as such. If you go into the court transcripts, you've got, you've got these aspects about hiding evidence and lying about the um, estate's, estate's existence. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get the uh, perjury story into the mirror, actually. So keep your eyes peeled on that one. Hopefully they'll take that one. But there's also the story about um, they both claim in the lawsuit that Michael used to keep them apart from each other, but we now have this footage of them hanging out together, them two and Brett Barnes on the uh, the set of the Jam music video. So that's another inconsistency there. They claim that Michael used to keep them apart, and we actually know that they were hanging out with each other. So that's that's another hole in the narrative there. Absolutely. And there's obviously inconsistencies uh, when specifically looking at Jimmy Safechuck too, which we'll, which we'll get to shortly. Our next question is from Donald Juan, who asks on Twitter, also, do you think all the family members are lying? The mothers and also their siblings and the grandmothers too, or are they being lied to as well? So their reactions are real. What do you guys think about that? I don't, they're not lying about, they've got a lot of Robson family. Um, there is trauma there, obviously, with the father committing suicide. And a lot of the um, upset in that film, I think, is genuine when it comes to Wade Robson's dad and what happened there. Um, obviously, the mum, Wade and Chantal, moving to the States and 
leaving him behind. You know, I think there's genuine pain there. And again, the, the whole suicide thing, you know, I would never ever come out and say that, you know, they're lying about being tearful, you know, about that in the documentary. So I, I do think there is some genuine pain, but all of that has nothing to do with Michael Jackson. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the abuse narrative, the family members are effectively irrelevant. They are just responding to a disclosure that's been made by a family member. If your brother or sister or daughter or whoever told you that they've been abused, you would react in the way that this family or these families are reacting. You would stand by them and you would believe them almost certainly because they're your flesh and blood. The only material evidence from any family member really is safe chuck's mum who according to him in one of his versions of the story he tells her in 2005 that he was abused and and of course in the film she says the same thing he told me that he didn't want to testify because michael was a bad man or, or words to that effect but even that story is shrouded in inconsistency and contradiction. So within uh, Safechuck's first sworn declaration, he gives two contradictory accounts of when he knew he was abused in the same document. So he says, I told my mother I was abused in 2005. And then later, about three pages later, he says, I realized I was abused in 2013 when I saw wade robson on tv now clearly somebody points this discrepancy out to him because a few months later he files what he calls a supplemental sworn declaration where he basically says all the same stuff again but he edits the section about 2005 and he removes the word abuse and he writes instead in that statement i told my mother in 2005 that michael jackson was a bad man so depending which version you know, if, which version do you believe? And if he simply told his mother, Michael Jackson's a bad man, well, we, we know from watching the documentary how sore he was about the fact that Michael kind of really stopped hanging out with him and that he seemed cheesed off about it. So you use phraseology as vague as, I told my mom I don't want to help Michael because he's a bad man. That could mean anything. It could mean he cut us out of his life, so why the fuck should I help him? Unless he's going to say, I use the word abuse, but he can't say I use the word abuse because then that destroys his lawsuit. So he's stuck in a real catch-22 there. And that's the, really the only material evidence from a family member because it, it's the only um, piece of factual information in that if, if she could say, you know, 12 years or however long, 10 years before Jimmy publicly said he'd been abused – he actually told me while Michael was still alive, when he wasn't suing or anything, he told me that he was abused. Then that's a, that is a, a strong piece of evidence, if you believe her, that he's telling the truth. But that's actually not the account that's given in the uh, revised statements. So it's all, again, it's a quagmire of contradiction and, and rewriting and, and changing the story. So really, nothing the family says is of any importance in an evidential sense. It's all just them responding to a story that they've been told by their loved one in the same way that any of us would respond to being told that story by a loved one. Mm. And I also think the genuine emotion 
of the circumstances around Wade's father, I think that was used by Dan Reed for the purposes of making the viewer, you know, believe that the whole family is deeply upset about what happened to them, you know, that they were abused by Michael Jackson. But that is that is genuine emotion, but that's been used by Dan Reed in completely the wrong way. Right. At Dr. Hajarat asks on Twitter, what is the real story about the video of Michael in disguise shopping for a ring with the young James Safechuck? There is CCTV or paparazzi footage or something of Michael in a shopping mall with James Safechuck. And the press reports at the time said that he bought toys and something else, but they didn't say he bought a ring. I mean, the fact that he was seen in a shop with James Safechuck that sold rings is not evidence that Michael and James Safechuck held a mock wedding ceremony. He took Geordie Chandler's mother shopping for rings. It sparked some speculation in the press at the time that she was his fiance and that they were going to get married or something. He took, I believe, at some point in, in the 90s, he took Karen Fay shopping. And then there were stories that he was getting engaged to Karen Fay. He used to take people shopping all the time. In fact, I've heard through one source that James Safechuck's thing was rings. He used to be obsessed with jewellery. And so Michael would just give him his credit card and let him go and spend, which is the same thing that he used to do with lots of other people, including his own nieces and nephews and so on. You know, the <laughs> the idea that James Safechuck opening a box and saying, here's a ring, this proves that we had a mock wedding ceremony. It's just, it's just farcical, really. Even if they did go shopping in a in a shop that sold rings, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. I've been in shops that sell rings with people. It doesn't prove that I've engaged in a mock wedding ceremony with them. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of a, such a misnomer, ludicrous, really. What's the? I mean, how, how you know, it's, it's an unanswerable question. What's the real story? We don't know what he bought and we don't know what the purpose was of what he was buying or anything. It's just, it's just they were in a shop that sold rings. So what? Who cares? Very good. Debbie Longshaw asks on Facebook, do you think that Dan Reed is actually complicit in all the lies, apart from lack of research? Or do you think that, like us, he was hoodwinked by Wade and James and is just another unfortunate pawn in the larger game? I mean, if he was hoodwinked, I don't think he was. But if he was, it's completely his own fault. He said that he's done 18 months of research into this and it's taken fans not long at all to be able to find some holes in um, Safe Chuck and Robson's stories. I, I absolutely do not believe he was hoodwinked. I think, actually, I just don't think he knows much about the case at all. So a lot of it probably has taken him by surprise. I agree. I don't think he did his research properly at all. He demonstrates time and again that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, keeps, for example, referring to the Michael Jackson estate as the Michael Jackson family, which is about as basic as you can get. I mean, this. They don't even like each other, the estate and the family. It, he just constantly puts his foot in it and gets things wrong. Look at his response to the train station story where he just fires off a tweet without even thinking about it and doesn't realize that by saying what he's saying, he's accusing James Safechuck of perjury. I mean, it's, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. And the whole 18 months of research, well, originally he said it was three weeks he gave one interview where he said we did three weeks of research 
And then he gave another interview about a week later where he said it was 18 months of research. So he's all over the place. I just think he did a really sloppy job and he's paying the price for it now. At MJJ Repository on Twitter, what is your interpretation of Dan Reed admitting in the Billboard interview that the footage from Wade's first take of telling his story was lost due to his camera breaking? Seems like a convenient excuse to film numerous takes and cherry pick which clips are more believable. I wouldn't look into that too much. I mean, the fact that he's even mentioned that interview means I don't think that there's anything sinister behind it. It could be a genuine, genuine thing. I wouldn't look too much into that personally. I don't know about you, Charles. It's not a big deal for me, really. I, I did wonder whether it had been concocted to explain why uh, so many people that were watching it said that they didn't find it genuine. Um, I wondered if it was an excuse. Oh, oh well, you know, it was just because he was going through the motions because we did it all before and we lost all the footage. Uh, but, you know, it's happened to me. Uh, when I was making my MJ Cast World Music Awards special, I recorded two interviews with Raymond Bain and Harrison Funk and then discovered that the audio had not come out and um, had to do them both again, which was really humiliating. So it can happen. I just don't think it's important, really. Wade Robson is supposed to be a professional actor, if you look at his IMDb. So first take or second take, he should be able to convince us if he wants to, and he's he's not convincing a lot of people. I don't think Dan Reed would have mentioned it if it didn't happen. I mean, why would he have? At Anetta on Twitter, could you talk about how Dan seems to try and sweep important things under the rug and how we are not accusing Wade and James of perjury in 93 or 2005, they were telling the truth then, and that when we say that they are perjurers, it is in the 2012 and 13 cases. He always brings that up incorrectly. Uh, yeah, I believe he deliberately misstates the facts constantly because he knows that he can't argue with the fans. So on a logical basis, if you have two guys that have told a story under oath that Michael Jackson is innocent, and then years later they tell a story under oath that Michael Jackson is guilty, it does not matter which one of those stories you prefer or which one you believe, one of those stories must be a lie and therefore is perjury. So when Dan just uh, uh, Dan Reed just assumes that people are talking about 93, 2005 when they talk about perjury, well, he's just, he's just assuming things which are not in evidence. He's taking uh, a position which is convenient to him, but which is not supported by the evidence. And he does things like that all the time. So like, for example, with the train station story, people were saying this is, you know, he is, Jimmy Safechuck has said under oath that he was abused until 92. And then because Michael liked young boys in 92, Jimmy Safechuck got too old. Michael went off him and stopped abusing him. And yet we also have Jimmy Safechuck saying that he was abused in the Netherland train station which was not opened until mid-1994. So Dan Reed goes on Twitter and writes, I like the fact that Michael's supporters are coming around now and they all accept that James Safechuck was abused, but they just can't agree on what date it happened. What the fuck was he talking about? They're not saying that at all. They're saying this is evidence that this guy is not telling the truth. The fact that he says he was abused at a time in a location when that location did not exist at that time. That's evidence of lying. And yet Dan Reed somehow in his mangled brain reads that as fans accepting that Michael molested 
Jimmy Savechuck. He's he does this all the time. He just gets things completely wrong, and I can't work out sometimes whether he's doing it on purpose or he's just a bit of a, a dimwit. But my suspicion is that he's doing it on purpose. He's deliberately misstating the position because he knows that everything he tweets is picked up by newspapers and reported. So he's just using his Twitter page to try to control the narrative, I think. At King Leah May asks, why are there no updates about what is happening with Wade and James? I find it interesting how every last detail about people like Jussie Smollett or Nipsey Hussle or R. Kelly are leaked to the public, but no word on Wade and James. They're literally gone from the scene. I mean, why would they have anything else to say other than the documentary? I think they're deliberately not putting themselves under the microscope further because they've done stuff like the BBC interview, like Oprah, where the questions are suited to them. Um, And I think at this stage now, uh, where these discrepancies have been found, I don't believe that they would want to go um, in front of the camera again and talk about that. I think that's what it comes down to. I don't think they want the scrutiny now because they feel that they've had everything put out there through the documentary and that anything else now, they may <laughs> go back and uh, and uh, destroy, well, their chances of, of a successful appeal in the lawsuit. I wouldn't be surprised also if their lawyers have banned them from talking because the more they talked, the more holes they dug and the deeper they dug. So... You know, this whole train station thing is is a, a result of Safe Chuck talking too much. He talked too much in the documentary and he's dug a massive hole for himself, just as one example. So it wouldn't surprise me if the lawyers have seen their case circling the drain and have just put their foot down and said, you cannot keep talking because otherwise it's, this is end game for us. They've done the publicity stuff beforehand, so there's no need really now for them to come out and speak about it any further. At Tina the Kitten on Twitter asks, does anybody know when the appeal is going to take place? Any dates of a new court process for James Savechuck and Wade Robson? All I know is that it's supposed to happen sometime this year. I have no idea about any specific dates. Yeah, the estate has um, filed uh, its response to the appeal. But, you know, as we know from the Casio case, these things take an absolute age. So you could be looking at months yet before... The next development, you know, it's taken like six years already. So I wouldn't hold your breath, Tina the Kitten. (laughs) Simon Clark sent us an email asking, Hi guys, question. Do you think if Wade Robson and Jimmy Savechuck lose their appeal, that could change the opinion of those who think Michael Jackson might have abused them? If they win, is it effectively game over for Michael Jackson's legacy? The appeal is, it's about statute of limitations, right, Charles? So I guess... It's not going to be about whether Michael Jackson did this. It's going to be about that, right? Yeah, so basically what they're appealing at the moment is the decision not to allow them to have a trial. So because the case was out of date, they couldn't proceed to an evidential hearing with argument and evidence presented. It literally fell down at the first hurdle because the court decided you don't even have the right to a trial because you're way out of time. So what they're appealing at the moment is that decision that that they can't have a trial because of the age of the allegations. So I just can't see them winning that appeal, to be honest. They've lost twice already. The law is pretty clear. I wonder if they just filed the appeal 
hoping that this documentary would have a far bigger impact than it's actually had and that uh, whichever judge presided over it would just feel that the weight of public opinion demanded that they break precedent and allow these guys to have a proper case for fear of a lynching. But I don't think it's going to happen. I, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to win. If they do win, um, to answer your question directly, Simon, could it change the opinion of those who think Michael Jackson might have abused him? Yeah. They don't know the ins and outs of a lawsuit like that. So Charles just described um, how that works. But I think um, the layman might see that as, you know, they've they've produced some sort of new evidence in court to suggest that, that Jackson did abuse him. So, yeah, I think it could change the opinion of many people simply because they would think that there's some sort of evidence has now come forward. Um, well, you know, at the minute it's all about statute limitations and, you know, nitty gritty legal details. But the layman might just see that as, as new evidence having put Michael down, unfortunately. Denise Lim asked on Facebook, I first saw Mike Smorkham getting the word out through the mirror, and I know Charles Thompson through BBC Radio. Even with your professions, how challenging was it to get the facts onto these public platforms given the total anti-MJ climate previously? For me, it wasn't too difficult because Mirror and Express, it's Reach PLCs, it's the same company that I work for. And also tabloids like that, they care mainly about page views and um, some of these these details um, got the massive page views. So once um, a story had done well for them, uh, those uh, journalists were keen for more. So fortunately, no, it wasn't that challenging, actually, in this instance. The first BBC interview was, I did that because as somebody else, it was either Casey Rain or Sam Habib had been invited on and they couldn't do it. So they told BBC to ring me. I did that interview, which I think was Kent. And then for the whole rest of that day, my phone was blowing up with other BBC people. I don't think they'd heard my interview. I, d I don't know what had happened. but So there was one BBC station that booked me in. They literally rang me up. They said, we want you to come on at this time. Uh, I said, yeah, all right, fine. I can do that. And then they said, so just so, you know, so we know what you're going to say. What's your position? And I said, well, I, th I think it's a lot of crap and... Um, there are massive problems with it. And the woman at the other end of the phone was just like, oh. Uh, and then she called me back like 10 minutes later and cancelled me. Uh, said, oh, we've decided to go with someone else. Then there was another station where I went on and clearly, again, the person was not expecting me to be anti the documentary and they were really fucked off. You could tell from the, <laughs> you could tell from the tone of voice and the questions they were asking. They were like, who let this guy on? And then after that, they all dried up again. So I had a, like a little brief window of being allowed onto the uh, BBC to drop some fact bombs. And then, um, and then they shut me out again once they realized who I was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I got in for uh, like 24 hours. Um, you know, so whatever. I mean, there is a massive top-down agreement. I'm very confident saying that. There is a top-down agreement that Michael Jackson is to be smeared. It's existed for about 30 years. I'm aware of what I'm up against. I'm aware that I'm not going to win any friends in the media, the mainstream national media, by taking the position I've taken. But I don't give a shit. So, you know, I don't... Again, what they're going to do, uh, all they're going to do is say, well, you... 
you're never going to come and work for us, but I don't want to fucking come and work for you. So fuck you. So, um, fuck them. I've gone off on a tangent a bit there, but fuck them. Charlie, you just mentioned Sam Habib at the MJAP on Twitter. He's actually submitted a question and here it is. It's mainly for Mike. So many lies and so many inconsistencies in Leaving Neverland compared to the trial transcripts. Smoking gun, however, was the train station. Tangible physical evidence of a fraudulent claim. How did you even think to investigate its bill date? Yeah, so the whole train station inconsistency, that was, you know, the the fans were the ones who found that. I'm not going to claim that that was me. Um, But once I'd seen that, I thought, how can I find the evidence to prove this? And at that time, all we had was the Elizabeth Taylor video from uh, the wedding and also the Getty uh, images, um, image from 1993. So I've got a source that, that I thought might be able to help. So I contacted that source and was able to get the permit. So it was just a case of really trying to cement those dates, really, with with documents, because um, people will get if looking at photos and whatever, people are always going to not take that uh, as seriously as the um, cold hard evidence of the documents. So I, I just really wanted to try and find um, the permits with the dates, um, so then it would be beyond all doubt. Um, I think someone, another Twitter user had actually sourced the documents as well. I didn't get them from that person. Um, I did get them myself. But yeah, that person, I think it looks like they got them as well. But um, just to be clear, I did source them myself. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually, Charlie and I interviewed Harrison Funk um, a little while back. And in that interview we did with him he did talk about the neverland train station and how michael expressly asked him on the phone not to photograph that train station because michael had built it prior to receiving proper approval from the council so at first i was like yeah okay there's the documents there but maybe michael did actually build it earlier but then you have shown corroborating photographs that actually show that the train station wasn't there even beyond when Jimmy Safechuck was saying he was molested. So I think it's a combination of the evidence of the documents and the photographs from the time period, and all of it comes together to show that, that yes, that is definitely a lie on Jimmy's part. So well done, mate, for your for your efforts there and how far you've got that through the media and the interviews you've done. It's been absolutely brilliant to watch. Great journalism. Yeah, I mean, like Charles said, I can't I can't just sit here and do nothing when... I have the resources and the knowledge to be able to do something about it. If, if the mainstream media want to see us as, as not favorably because of what we're doing, then so be it. Um, I'd rather speak my mind and, you know, the, in the way I want to. And if there are consequences of that, then so be it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, all they've got on you really is, you know, it, if you want, if you ever plan to go and work in the national press, then, uh, this would be damaging to you because they will hold this against you for sure. But I don't have any intention of doing that because I just think it's a completely corrupt uh, enterprise. So do I want to be part of the $350 million a week for the NHS and climate change doesn't exist brigade? Not really. At Viola, KI0048549 on Twitter asks, can you name any other journalists that you think are doing a great job at scrutinising the current allegations? John Ziegler. Um, 
that's it. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I said this a couple. I said this a couple of weeks ago. It's is a handful of us in the entire world that are scrutinising the allegations, and I think that's just. I mean, I know why, but I still, I'm still staggered that that's the case. Whether it's about the reputation and the damage it might do, yeah, that could be the main main thing. But I'd rather. I'd rather try and get to the bottom of this and find the truth than worry about the damage it's going to do on my reputation, you know, elsewhere, to be honest. I just thought of a question I'd like to ask from my point of view. Do you fellas feel as professional journalists, just like, does it feel to you just like a giant weight on your shoulders or does it feel more something like you're proud to be able to do it and this is, you love doing it? How's it, what does it feel like? Well, personally... I want to do my job and my job is, well, I don't cover Michael Jackson in my day job, but obviously having, you know, done the book about Michael and written other bits and pieces like Charles has done as well. I think I'm in a position to be able to do something about the situation that we find ourselves in with the media and just not bothering to look at court transcripts, not looking at facts, you know, just taking these claims at face value doing nothing to try and seek the truth. And our industry is about seeking the truth. And I feel like personally, I'm in a position where I can at least contribute. So, you know, I want to be able to do that. And I'm proud that as a journalist, that I can, you know, make a small contribution to try and find the truth. So I don't see it as a weight on my shoulders, really. Um, I think it's quite exciting. I, I'm passionate about my industry. I'm passionate about research. And yes, it may not look good to future employers or whatever, but it's still journalism. The documentary and the, the coverage around the documentary hasn't been journalism. So I guess maybe some people will see that in a positive light. Charlie, do you want to respond to what your point of view is on that? Do you feel like it's a weight on your shoulders or are you proud of what you're able to do here? Both. I don't feel like it's a weight on my shoulders, really, but I feel like as somebody who is like in love with and married to journalism, uh, it's like watching something you love die. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, you watch, uh, what's happening right now with this documentary and it's just so disgusting and despicable. You've got a whole industry whose job, whose sole job is to investigate and challenge and ask questions and seek truth and the whole industry is not doing it. The whole industry is not doing it. And it's just disgusting. And it just makes you think just proper journalism and proper journalists are just completely fucked. What do you do? Where do you go to work? There's not one publication in the world which is doing its job on this documentary. And that is just a disgrace. But where I find solace is that if I look at my journalistic heroes, they all have been renegades with a kind of a, a, a dim view of the profession generally. So Hunter S. Thompson said all journalism was bullshit. George Orwell basically said all most journalism was bullshit. Nick Davies uh, effectively says that most journalism is bullshit. Woodward and Bernstein, you know, <laughs> if you go down the list, all the great journalists have been kind of uh, iconoclasts and 
renegades who were kind of uh, cheesed off with the industry generally and um, and just were doing their own thing. You know, so I kind of feel like I'm in good company. I, I love journalism really like so much i just love it it's for me it's like a vocation so it's a it's a real double-edged thing for me because on the one hand i am proud to be doing the job properly even if it's going to lose friends and alienate people but on the other hand you just look at the industry where it is right now and what's happening and you think where does somebody that loves journalism go what do you do? There's, there's no future in it. It's dead. So that's disturbing and depressing. What are you going to do, Charles? Do you think, I mean, going forward, the copy and paste culture? So last year, I won an award. It was uh, an investigative journalism award, right? So <laughs> I win this award, right? And then I get a phone call from a national newspaper that says, well, we just read about your investigative journalism award. We've got a job going. We wondered if you'd want to come and work for us. Here's the job specs. You'd be working this day, this day, this day, these shifts, blah, blah, blah. So I said to the the person that rang me, I said, uh, okay, so I've got one question. How much of my time would be spent performing journalism and how much of my time would be spent copying and pasting things onto a website and they said they said well i'm not gonna lie there would be a lot of copying and pasting involved so it's just why the fuck have you rung somebody when if you're just looking for somebody to come and copy and paste you might as well just get someone in for about three fucking pounds an hour why why are you why are you looking for an investigative journalist the whole thing makes no fucking sense is mental. So they go, they scour the country looking for investigative journalists so they can get them into copy and paste. What the fuck? So that's the state of our industry right now. And then about three months later, I get another phone call and and have the exact same com- conversation with someone else. Oh, we, we just read about this award that you've won. We just wondered if you want to come work for it. Yeah, all right. How much of my time will be copying and pasting? Well, there would be quite a lot of night shifts and copying and pasting. What the fuck? It's just mental. It's just absolutely mental. The whole industry is just like fucking mentally diseased. I don't know what the fuck's going on. It's just dying on its ass. It, what I would love to do is just continue in the regional press, but who knows how long that's going to last with the uh, financial climate as it is. So, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll just become a bit like Batman and I'll go and get another job and then do journalism at night. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Okay. Friend of the show at Mixing History asked on Instagram, do you agree that us, the fans, should stop supporting people like Paul McCartney and Ellen after their comments on the film? That assumes that I supported people like Paul McCartney or Ellen before. The one that was disappointing for me was Louis Theroux. That was disappointing, although not unexpected. But no, I don't think anybody should stop supporting people. I'm not going to say that you should. Like, it's a mandatory thing. For me, unquestionably, changes my opinion on them and whether they have a brain or not. And whether I, you know, 
really am, am interested in them anymore or, or have any interest in anything they have to say. You know, for me, if, if somebody has come out in support of this uh, documentary, I find it very difficult to have any interest in anything they have to say about anything ever again because I just think they're a moron. I think it's probably better to stay silent than to say stuff like what Paul McCartney and Alan have, to be honest, because that just shows that they haven't looked into it at all. So I, I think I think it's better to say nothing at all than say what they have said personally. But yeah, I agree. There's, there's no reason to suddenly stop supporting them just because they've they've spoken their mind about something they don't know a lot about. Um, I think it would just be petty, really, to be honest. I think if if you like those guys, then crack on. I don't think you should stop supporting them just because of their comments. Next one, friend of the show at Sean Joe Fitz on Twitter asks, are Michael's kids able to sue for pain and suffering that this TV show has caused them? This will get these two guys into court under oath. Well, I covered a little bit um, of this in an opinion piece I did. I wrote about how there was a ruling um, in the European Court of Human Rights in 2014. It was something like um, Putitstin again, uh, versus Ukraine or something like that. And the applicant complained that his um, dead father had been defamed in an article. And the European Court of Human Rights actually accepted that the um, reputation of a deceased member of a person's family uh, may come within the scope of one of the articles of the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. I think it's Article 8. Um, and that is because uh, the reputation may, in specific or certain circumstances, affect the living relative's right um, to respect for a private and family life. And in that case, the applicant actually lost the case on the grounds that the impact on him was very little. But while rejecting the case, the court said that a claim on the basis of breaching a person's rights to a private and family life could have succeeded. So, yes, they could try and go down that avenue, but I feel that they wouldn't be successful because Michael Jackson has already been accused of similar things, obviously, 93, 2005. So there, there is scope to go down that route, but I don't feel like it would be successful given that Michael Jackson has already been called uh, a paedophile before. So, it's, you know, because there's nothing new, the court wouldn't see that as coming under that scope, I'm afraid. At WCE Liam 2 on Twitter asks, you're walking down the street and you bump into Wade. What do you say to him? From a journalist's point of view, would just say, would you ever be interested in speaking to someone and addressing concerns about your credibility? That's what I would say. I wouldn't shout at him or scream at him. and I just want him to sit down and speak about credibility issues face them like you should have faced in the documentary that's it to me really yeah i get that i mean um i don't believe he would be honest so to me it seems like a pointless endeavor but you know you never know you might crack him if you pull a paxman i think i probably would just walk straight past him he doesn't know me well he may do he might <laughs> i don't know maybe he listens to the mj cast but um <laughs> You know, God. I, I think I just would would blank him. I've got no interest in talking to him. Claudia Sanchez Moreira asks on Facebook, 
There has been a theory in the fan world that Harvey Weinstein might have financed the Leaving Neverland documentary as a strategy to deviate the attention away from his own allegations. To me, that theory is a little bit too much. Do you know if there are concrete reasons for suspecting this, or is it just because there are pictures of Oprah with him on friendly terms that some fans are saying that? Well, of course, the big smoking gun in terms of this theory is the fact that uh, the screening the day after Leaving Neverland at Sundance was the Harvey Weinstein documentary, which basically got zero press because the whole press was a meltdown about the Michael Jackson documentary. And also there was a, a kind of, it was weird that the, the Jackson documentary was even shown at Sundance because Sundance is a film festival and Leaving Neverland is not a film. It's a TV series, two-part TV series. So that was weird. And especially the fact that Leaving Neverland was parachuted in at the last minute as well added to people's suspicion and then, of course, you have the link between the director of the Sundance Film Festival and the lawyer who represented AEG uh, Putnam in the family civil suit, who was the lawyer that stood up in court and warned the family that if you proceed with this case against AEG, then things are going to get ugly. So there are little things there that the fans have noticed and, and little coincidences, or they don't believe they're coincidences. I'm open to the theory, but I would want to see more evidence before I subscribe to it. To me, it's not far-fetched, but at the same time, I'm a, an evidence person, so you need to prove it to me before I'm going to accept it. Okay, Let Me Know asks on Facebook, in the zeitgeist we're in now, isn't it true that we have to take allegations like that from alleged victims seriously? And serious allegations need serious investigations. At first, we as a society have to take them seriously and then investigate seriously to see if they make any sense. If we call alleged victims liars immediately, what does that do to actual victims that speak out? I have no answer. I'm just thinking of all the abuse victims that are connected directly to the current discussions. In the UK, a couple of years ago, probably more than five years ago now, we had this huge scandal with a guy called Jimmy Savile, who was a former BBC radio DJ and TV presenter and charity fundraiser, who, after he died was exposed as one of the worst paedophiles in British history. There were hundreds of victims that came forward. And off the back of the Savile thing, there was a huge, uh, what you would probably call a moral panic, where all of a sudden everybody was being accused. Every historic TV show, radio DJ, there, it, I mean, it was like ridiculous. Like Every day there was another person that was being accused. And what happened over the subsequent years was a number of those allegations fell down. Most of the people who were charged were acquitted by juries. And in fact, uh, there was even a, this very sort of out there conspiracy theory about how MPs, like members of parliament in the UK, had all belonged to a child-murdering paedophile ring where they would get together and murder children in front of each other. That was in large part discredited. And all of this moral panic about VIP celebrities, abusers, resulted in a public inquiry. And it was led by a former High Court judge called Sir Richard Henriquez. And he wrote what's now known as the Henriquez Report. And he found that these false allegations had been fueled by 
an attitude within the police, a kind of a politically correct attitude, which had demanded that every person who came with an allegation to the police was automatically believed. And so because the police were instructed that they must believe all allegations, there were some people walking through the door with allegations that were so absurd that no right-thinking person could ever have even considered that they might be true, such as all these MPs getting together in a room and, and stabbing children to death in front of each other while having sex with them. It was nuts. And then Henriquez writes a report, the Henriquez report, where he basically says what let me know is saying, which is we must take investi- uh, allegations seriously, but taking them seriously is not the same as automatically believing them. Taking them seriously includes thoroughly and properly investigating them and also taking seriously the right of the accused person to be presumed innocent unless and until they are proven to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So what you've got at the moment is a culture which is shifting so far away from the presumption of innocence and the right to a fair trial and, and you know, needing any kind of evidence to support an allegation. And it's, it's all this kind of politically correct madness about if anybody makes an allegation, you have to believe them. And if you don't believe them, then you're scarring all victims in the world forever. It's madness, I'm afraid. It's just total madness. We must take allegations seriously, but taking them seriously includes properly investigating them and taking seriously also the rights of the accused person. Whether I mean, there certainly there were Michael Jackson fans who rushed to judgment about Wade and Jimmy and were calling them lying. I mean, I, you know, the idea of even sending them messages directly and saying you lying scum or whatever is, is just nutty. But, you know, it's important to remember that these cases had been litigated for five years already through the civil lawsuits that Wade and Jimmy had brought. So there was ample evidence in the public domain already to suggest that these guys were not credible before the documentary even came to light. So I don't think that those fans who had been studying the court case were immediately accusing these guys of being liars and rushing to judgment. I think they were informed. That's all you can ask, really, is that people inform themselves before commenting, which takes us back to the Ellen and Paul McCartney question. It's kind of like, if you haven't read the court documents, do you have a right to an opinion? And and my thought on that is, no, you don't really. You wouldn't be allowed to sit on the jury if you didn't know all the facts. So it's, it's irresponsible, I agree, to uh, come running straight out the gate with an opinion when you, you barely know anything about the subject. Right. That's great. Thank you, Charlie. Now, Mike, I've got a question for you here from at Kusta Kanja on Instagram. Now, not only are you a journalist, but you also are an author and you've written a fantastic book on Michael Jackson. You are the Michael Jackson biographer, author of Making Michael. Now, this question is asking, in your opinion, what are some of the reasons that so many people judge Michael Jackson for his eccentricities and call him a weirdo and believe literally every single lie about him, but turn a blind eye when it comes to other celebrities who are also not perfect? Um, the answer's simple there, really. And I think, unfortunately, some of it is it stemmed from Michael Jackson's PR campaign um, in the bad era. He was getting Frank DeLeo and his publicists to uh, put all these stories into the media, like the elephant bones and, and things like that. But obviously, 
you know, that's relatively harmless. But the weirdo eccentricity stuff, that's all stemmed from the salacious tabloid coverage of Michael Jackson. In terms of turning a blind eye, I think in a way that just shows how big Michael Jackson was as a superstar. The fact that all the focus is on him, really. There's a saying, obviously, that um, no publicity is bad publicity, but uh, much of the publicity has kept Michael Jackson in the public eye and has helped to create this enigma, this mythic character. Um, and I don't think it's all bad, but obviously 80% of it is absolutely abhorrent. But yeah, I, I just think it's Michael Jackson's personality which has caused the media to focus solely on him. At Look Over Your Shoulders on Instagram has asked a great question that I'd like both of you guys to answer. And I asked this question to a number of guests when we did the Leaving Neverland Roundtable, but I think it's important to hear this answer from two journalists. What do you think is the concise yet effective response to people in real life who bring up the documentary or say something negative about Michael Jackson regarding the accusations? So, fellas, just one by one, imagine you're at the water cooler at work. Someone approaches you and says, dude, what did you think about leaving Neverland? How crazy is that? Michael has got to be a pedophile. How do you respond to that statement? Let's start with you, Mike. I would just point to the media coverage of it and also point to Dan Reed's method of directing, the fact that it's been so uh, blatantly one-sided. And I would ask that person asking the question to um, just look into the other side because they've only heard the prosecution. They haven't heard the defence. So, And that's not really their fault. That is Dan Reed's fault and that is the fault of the general media and jumping on the bandwagon copying and pasting everything. So I would just politely ask that they maybe look deeper into it and try and inform themselves fully to be able to give a just opinion on it. Yeah, I think I would say that I can understand why they would think that based on watching the documentary. And then I would probably say, are you aware that both of those men are proven liars? Are you aware that both of those men are proven perjurers? Are you aware that they tell stories in the documentary which contradict their own sworn statements in their ongoing lawsuits? And are you aware that one of them has vividly detailed being molested uh, at age 10 in a building that did not exist until he was an adult? Those would be probably my opening gambits. And then I would say, you know, there is a lot that you needed to know from that documentary, which was left out of that documentary. Uh, and then uh, it would be great if there was some sort of resource to point them to. But at the moment, there's no cohesive Leaving Neverland resource. You know, a lot of people are sharing the Liam McEwen thing, which is very good, but it's not comprehensive. Then there's the Pirates in Neverland documentary thing that's been made, which is is comprehensive but only up until after the trial doesn't go into the the robson and safe stuff so you know that's that's where it all falls down for me is there's no it would be great if there was a counter documentary or some uh, central uh hub of information that you could point people to but that doesn't exist yet so really the <laughs> the only way of uh, dealing with those people at the water cooler is to 
give them a four hour slideshow or something <laughs> or um or arrange to meet them once a week for the next month and give them a lecture <laughs> in their living room or something because there's there's nowhere else to send them we've got the articles obviously out there train station canyon everything else but there's it's not as Charlie says in in one place right now for everybody to to go to unfortunately well hopefully taj jackson can do something about that well fingers crossed all right let's wrap things up fellas thank you so much for joining me i know it's uh late over there in in england so thank you again i want to congratulate both of you guys on the amazing work you're doing all around the world not just in the uk you guys uh, are reaching audiences all over the place. Charlie, recently with your interview with um, Ziegler in the US, which was phenomenal. I really enjoyed that yesterday. Mike, you're on TV shows all over the world lately doing interviews. So congratulations, fellas, on being great journalists and getting the truth out there tirelessly for audiences everywhere. There's going to be another thing I've done. It's called The Hidden Truth with Jim Breslow, uh, who's a former civil rights attorney in america or civil liberties attorney so that's coming out soon as a podcast also although i don't know how helpful it is because he was quite aggressively anti-mj throughout the whole interview so we'll just have to see how that's edited and whether he makes me sound deranged yeah i'm more of a a, a writer sort of kind of guy i don't i haven't done many tv shows and podcasts and things, things like that which you can probably tell but um yeah, I'll, I'll keep working at what I do, which is research and writing. Um, so see what see what else I can find. Yeah, well, you're doing great on that front as well, Mike. And um, fellas, look, there are lots of fans out there who love engaging with us on social media. Um, so I'm going to give them a bit of a information on where to find us. We are the MJ Cast. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as the MJ Cast. Uh, you can also reach us on email at themjcast.icloud.com. We love hearing from our listeners all over the world. Please drop us a line. What about you, Mike? How can people reach you if they want to find you? Twitter is at Mike Smallcomb one um, on Facebook, Mike Smallcomb. Email Mike Smallcomb one at gmail.com. Just know um, I've got evidence that Michael Jackson is alive. And what do you think? <laughs> Emails, please. <laughs> yeah yeah and and charlie you've got a, a twitter handle as well what's that one yep it's at ce thompson spelt t-h-o-m-s-o-n it's incredible the number of people that tweet me at my correctly spelled twitter handle and then call me mr thompson so literally <laughs> just they literally just messaged me with my correct surname and then they put mr thompson but anyway um so but I can't guarantee that any message they send me is going to get read or responded to because I am being absolutely bombarded all day. <laughs> I'm getting like a thousand notifications a day and I cannot possibly keep up with that, particularly on a weekday when I'm at work. So, uh, I mean, I probably see about uh, f like less than 5% of what's coming in at the moment. And I, I do occasionally spot a tweet from some nutcase, some like, uh, you know, anti MJ nutcase person like Zach, the cat or Bob, the sheep or whatever they're calling themselves that day, which would be like, Oh, I noticed Charles Thompson's ignoring all my tweets because he can't argue with my amazing logic. It's like, I've not, I don't even know what the fuck you've been sending me. I don't, I've not seen it. I don't know what you've been sending me. I can't keep up. 
I mean, I've got like hundreds of unread emails. I, I just can't keep up with the volume of traffic that's coming in at the moment. So sorry if you message me and I don't answer, but feel free to come and uh, follow me at, at C.E. Thompson with no P. <laughs> yeah i just want to thank everyone for all the kind messages that they sent i've had hundreds and hundreds and i can't obviously respond to them all i also probably like charles see five percent of what's sent but everything is appreciated just no wacky michael is alive i've got evidence the videos please so stay away paul jr all right, so um, we're going to wrap things up here. A reminder too for everybody that you can get us as a podcast on your podcast apps. Search us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher Radio, all those great places, uh, Podcast Republic on Android. We're on YouTube if you want to find us there as well. But we would love it if you could subscribe to us as a podcast and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Look, that's a wrap, everybody. Thank you very much for a great Q&A. We only got through a small fraction of all the questions that were sent to us. We got over 200. We got through about 30-something in the end. But I just want to thank both of you guys again for coming on the MJ Cast and make sure to have a great fortnight ahead and keep Michael in.